Thank you. Um, yes, my name is Ken Elder. Um, I'm, uh, compared to some people, I'm fairly new here. I've only been here for about 22 or four or five years. Um, so, uh, yeah, so forgive me if I'm uh, out of place. Uh, and Mark, be encouraged, Google does get it wrong. I'm, I've been on a one-man campaign for some years to get Google to put Kamara in the right spot. Now, you've all heard of Kamara, or oh, maybe you haven't. Kamara is the village that I was born in, well, near. Um, the main street now consists of six empty houses. Uh, I think there's one or two occupied in the back blocks. But Google has it 12 miles, whoops, whatever that is in that modern stuff, 12 miles in the wrong spot. And I've emailed them several times and they refuse to change the location of Kamara. So be encouraged, they do get it wrong. This morning, uh, as you know, we're doing a series of One from the Heart. And um, I thought long and hard about this one because I've got lots of things that I've I suppose they're my hobby horses, but I thought, no, I'll stick to something a little bit more uh, generic, and that is the importance of the Old Testament. Uh, for some years, uh, I've been, well, I suppose ever since I've been started my uh, so-called theological career at uh, Cape and Ray Missionary Fellowship, um, the understanding of the scriptures has been very near and dear to me. And uh, part of that, of course, is the Old Testament, which we tend to not emphasise as much as I think we should. For example, when was the last time you heard a series of sermons from the Old Testament? Uh, when's the last time you heard a series of sermons from the New Testament? You can always remember that one. Uh, well, I hope you can. Um, but the Old Testament doesn't seem to get quite the mention that sometimes I think it should. The Old Testament to me is more than just the foundations. It is an integral part of God's revelation. In the Old Testament, we have spelled out many things, including, for example, the fact that God is the creator, the fact that he's the ruler of the nations, that he's the ruler of history, and history is not just what has man done through the ages, but history, real history, is how has God dealt with man through the ages. In the Old Testament, we see the breadth and the depth of man's sinfulness. We see the importance of obedience and the consequences of lack of obedience. We see the patience and the power of God. If we didn't have the Old Testament, then some of the New Testament wouldn't have been quite as easy to understand. And to illustrate, I want to just, as an example, look at one of the last words of Christ on the cross. Famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say those words? Remember, the situation was Christ was hanging on the cross he was near death. But around him was a group of faithful disciples who must have been absolutely shattered 
if you've just spent three years worshipping this guy, because he appeared to be a guy, as some form of God, hoping that your whole nation and the whole of God's revelation was going to come to fruition through this person, that he had convinced you that he was a miracle worker and was the son of God, and then you see him hanging on the cross. As a disciple, where would you be? If it wasn't for the Old Testament, those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, could have just been Christ's admission that he was paying the penalty for sin. Jesus had known that the penalty for sin is death and he was paying the penalty for you and for me and so therefore he was about to die. But see, why did Jesus put this question instead of making a statement? I think the reason he made it a question and not just a statement was because he was interested in the pastoral care of his disciples. I was speaking to Nat a few minutes ago about pastoral care. As part of our care for each other, we have to look after each other. But Jesus was concerned, I believe, despite his absolute uh, horrendous situation, his agony, his suffering. He was concerned about his disciples. So he made a statement in the form of a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you do that? Well, I believe the answer is the fact that in Jesus' day, every Jew knew the Psalms off by heart. Every single Psalm, 150 of them in our numbering. They had a slightly different system. But they knew the whole 150 off by heart. And you didn't call a psalm by a number because they didn't have numbers as far as their psalms are concerned. You called the psalm by its first words, its first line. So what would Psalm 23 be called? The Lord is my shepherd. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he saying? Psalm 22. Thank you. A psalm of David. Jesus was pointing out to them that what was happening was plainly told to them in their scriptures. That this was not the result of Roman, uh, Roman terror, Roman cruelty. It was part of God's work. God was at, at, at work in this situation. What I want you to do now is turn to Psalm 22. You've all got your Bibles, hopefully, or your telephones or something with Psalm 22. And as we read it together, we won't actually read it together, but you will read it. And as you come across some phrase or sentence that refers to or describes Christ's current situation on the cross, I want you just to call it out. So let's start at verse 1. Where's the first, what's the first phrase that refers to 
Christ on the cross. Right, let's keep on going. What's the next one, please? Anyone? Right. Uh, next one, please. Verse 6. Right, thank you. Seven, yes. Thank you. All who sneer at me, they separate with their lips, they wag their heads, saying, what's the next one? Right, which is exactly what they were saying to Jesus. The next one. I'm dropping hints here. Verse 10. Upon thee I was cast from birth. If we go now to verse 14. Whoops. Don't know what happened there. Sorry about that. Um, All my bones are out of joint. Next one. Yes. Yes. I missed that one. Thank you. <laughs> Dogs have surrounded me. Verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. 17. I can count all my bones. And last but not least, they divided my garments amongst them. Now, remember, this is a psalm of David. When was David ever in that situation? Can I suggest that David was never in that situation? Even though David wrote this psalm, we believe, he was actually prophesying about something in the future. If you read the rest of that chapter, that psalm, which we haven't got time to do this morning, it's a psalm of disaster being turned into victory. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to say to his disciples. You may be looking at disaster. You may be watching me die. The one that you've pinched, pinched, that one that you have attached all your hopes to, dying on a cross, controlled, it seems, by Roman cruelty. But no, what you are seeing is not the reality. What you are seeing is God about to turn tragedy into triumph. Now, that was the introduction. I now want to get on to the sermon. No, not really. Uh, sorry, I missed that one. Notice how John records that situation and how he describes it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, John was in no doubt that Psalm 22 was being fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross. This morning, however, because I 
in case you haven't noticed, it's getting close towards Christmas time. I wanted to briefly look at Christmas in the Old Testament. Just a few random facts about Christmas. The Christians actually took over a Roman pagan festival celebrating the return of longer days. Remember, you've got to change your, your uh, hemisphere. And so consequently, when the Christians took over a Roman uh, uh, celebration, as you can guess, the pagans of the day started complaining. Sound a bit familiar? We might complain about the pagans taking Christmas Day back, but it's just history repeating itself. The merriment and gift giving came from pagan festival, which was celebrated around about the 17th to the 25th of December. Interestingly enough, Jesus was probably born around about September. We just got it a bit late. But I think the real reason is that the Christians want to take a pagan festival over, so they just made it in December because that was the best festival to take over. Um, even, however, the laudable custom of giving presents for, to each other, for example, which originally came from the desire to emphasise God has given us a gift, his son, has now, of course, been taken over by commercialism. One of the fascinating things was that I discovered Christians, uh, Christmas was not a holiday in America until 1870. In actual fact, in, 18, in 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed in Boston. That's America, you know, where they have all these Christmas things. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit was actually fined five shillings. So Christmas has had a chequered history. But the event of Christmas, Christ's death, uh, Christ, sorry, Christ's birth, was actually foretold way back in the Old Testament. The first hints were in Genesis 3, but the clearest announcement is found in Isaiah 7:14, for unto us a child, uh, sorry, a, a virgin will give birth, and in particularly in Isaiah chapter 9. Um, 9 to 1, chapter 9, verse 1 to 7, which I will look at uh, this morning. And here Isaiah starts off by pointing out that although God has punished Israel in the past because of their rebellion, he is now going to do a new work, one which will bring lasting peace, which is something Israel didn't often have, to not only Israel, but to all people. But it's verses 6 and 7 that I want to concentrate this morning. Um, For our child will be born to us, verse 6, a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called... Oops, I'm going too far. Sorry. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, Matthew certainly dispels any doubt 
that this was talking about Jesus because in Matthew 4.13, he points out that this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes those verses in his gospel. But this morning, I just want to briefly draw out from this passage in Isaiah, which remember was written some 600 years before Christ's birth, who Jesus really is. The names that Isaiah gives the Messiah are not names that are actually spoken to him or of him, but are names that he should deserve, names that would be descriptive of his character. And for a Hebrew, the names were always meant to be descriptive of your character. For example, Joshua means God saves. The names were always a sermon in themselves. So Jesus, the names that Isaiah gives him in this, in this passage is a descriptor of who Jesus really is. Notice also that Isaiah tells us that the Messiah is given. It's not something we have to earn. The fact that we are human means that God will give us the life that is needed to pay the penalty for our sin. It's no wonder that John could say, uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So what are some of these descriptors that Isaiah gives Jesus? Wonderful is the first descriptor that Isaiah uses. Consider Jesus in any point of view, either as God or man, in one person, he is altogether wonderful. Words fail to convey the greatness of this person. Isaiah also uses the word counsellor. Sometimes this word has been joined with uh, wonderful, in other words, wonderful counsellor, but they're two separate words, two separate descriptors. Jesus is wonderful. He is also a counsellor, someone who is able to advise or counsel, one who's fitted to stand near princes and kings as their advisor. It is expressive of great wisdom and qualifications to guide and direct the human race. Now, an illustration of Christ's counselling abilities, so to speak, as far as Isaiah is concerned, is the response of the people when they heard him, as in Matthew 7, 29. The multitudes were amazed, for he was teaching them as one having authority. Jesus was no mere man. He was also divine. Isaiah also uses the descriptor of mighty God. Here we see Jesus as both man and divine. And it's only the union of those two natures that enables Jesus to fulfil his ministry. As a mighty God, he has the wisdom, the strength to go through his undertaking. He's able to save to the utmost and the work as a mediator, no less than the power of the mighty God could accomplish this. 
Jesus was indeed a mighty God. If Jesus was just human, nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our worship of him would be idolatry, would be vain and in, uh, uh, foolish. But he shows himself to be God as well as man and because of that we may rely on him with complete confidence. Jesus also was trustworthy because of that. The other thing, of course, to remember is that Jesus had a battle on his hands. His battle was not human. It was also divine. His opponent was the devil, evil, death. Opponents that we had no power against. But yet Jesus, because he is human and divine, could be victorious over our enemies. Isaiah also describes him as everlasting father. Everlasting because he's God. Father because fatherhood in one sense is the nature of God. A father is designed to protect, to nurture, to bring out the best, to guide. That's the role of God. And so therefore Isaiah, because he sees Jesus, this Messiah that he's talking about, as able to do all those things, he is also obviously a father in the, in the divine sense. Isaiah is describing the mode of his existence with the, the Father and the Spirit and as that his essential nature of uh, being true and God, being essential, a true part of God. Um, the other thing, of course, the other scripture that Isaiah uses, Prince of Peace, Peace, of course, in one sense speaks to our deepest human needs. Do we not all long for peace? How appropriate is this title in our war-ridden generation today? This expression, Prince of Peace, is a Hebrew way of denoting that Jesus or the Messiah would be a peaceful prince. Uh, prince. He would promote peace not war, as many do today. Many of the leaders of the world have been evil and have used war and cruelty as their weapons. Not so Jesus, not so the Messiah. Through the coming of Christ, the angels sing, true peace will come. In the work, it is the work of Christ to bring peace to all human relationships. Peace in man's relation to God, peace in man within himself, peace with man's dealing with his circumstances, where he lives, what he's able to do, what he's not able to do and so on. And finally, peace, which that one didn't come out, sorry, uh, peace with his fellow man. The Messiah brings out peace in all those areas. So finally, 
take home. My desire is that we see the Old Testament as essential to understanding the New. So many parts of the New Testament are much more readily understood when we look at the Old Testament. One of my lecturers once said, and I think he's quite right, the best way to understand the book of Revelation, which is everyone's favourite book, is it not? The best way to understand the book of Revelation is to get a Bible with a good cross-reference to the Old Testament. And after that lecture, I sat down and I remember doing this. I picked out a passage of Revelation and I, I looked at all the cross-references to the Old Testament and I could see exactly what he was saying. Having a good cross-reference to the Old Testament made that passage of Revelation so much more understandable. And I thought, yeah, he's right. The Old Testament is essential to our understanding of the New. The other thing I wanted to encourage us to do is to remember that this Christmas, yes, we are celebrating the birth of a child. Uh, yesterday I was, no, it's Friday, I was doing grandparent duty and I took our grandson uh, to the library um, and we ended up going through the story time that the library was holding. And surprise, surprise, the story time was sort of around Christmas. And they had about 12 um, images of things relating to Christmas. And the kids had to match up their little tag with the image. Out of those 12, the nearest thing to Christmas was actually a baby and a mother. All the rest were presents, Christmas trees, decorations, family, Christmas pudding, presents, whatever else, I can't remember the rest. And I thought, yep, that's exactly what's happening in this day and age. Christmas has been moved to one side and Christ left. I want us to remember that Christmas is more about what Isaiah was talking about some 700 years before Christmas. Isaiah was telling us that Christmas is actually about God in human form coming to this world to enable us to have life and have life more abundantly. Thank you. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.